0: Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 50. Last episode, we heard how the South Africans had troubled overnight to reach the first target planned for Operation Protea. That was the city or the town of Zangongo. So we'll return to the next moves a little later in this podcast, but first we need to delve into what happened in the air war. There was an interesting development and a first for the Air Force on the 20th of August, 1981. That was four days before the attack proper. Pilot Rainier Keat, was strapped into the cockpit of a Mirage 3 at Ondangwa runway, the wingman of a section led by Commandant Mac van der Merwe. They were on standby for ground attack and had their underwing rocket pods attached, which meant the Mirages were totally unsuitable for any kind of air defence activity. At about 0945, South African radar picked up fast jet traffic on the Angolan side of the border heading straight for Ondangwa. It looked like an Angolan Air Force attack of some sort. The Mirage pair scrambled and were given an interception vector. The high-speed Mirages closed in on the Angolans head-to-head. As they approached 14 nautical miles to impact, the South Africans were about to jettison their rocket pods to reduce the drag and improve their chances against the incoming MiGs, when suddenly the Angolans turned 180 degrees. Radar indicated they were heading back to Lubango. The Mirages returned to Undangua. But this was an unusual action by the Angolans. They were clearly prepared and ready for the coming invasion, which they knew was imminent and were testing the South Africans' preparedness. On D-Day minus one, on the 23rd of August 1981, the Air Force participation in Operation Protea began in earnest. There were sustained attacks on radar installations at Chibemba and Kahama, initiated with a four-ship Buccaneer strike on the Barlock and Sidenet radars at Kahama. The formation attacked from the northeast with the lead aircraft firing AS-30 guided missiles. Both installations were damaged but not destroyed. The Buccaneers carried one AS-30 under each wing, which weighed 520 kilograms. The warhead alone was 50 kgs. It had a boosted burn time of 20 seconds and was manually controlled by the pilot with a joystick on the left side of the cockpit. There was a UHF radio link with the missile that the pilot used to steer the weapon into the target. As soon as it cleared the wing. A red flare ignited at the back which improved the pilot's view. That helped their aim. The buccaneers came in low, then at 20 nautical miles from the target they would pitch up and climb rapidly to 15,000 feet, then dive at around 20 degrees onto the target, launching the missile from 13 nautical miles away. That gave the pilot time to make any changes to the trajectory. At 1100 hours 02 and then at 03, Two waves comprised of a single Canberra leading four Mirage F1CZs attacked Kahama flying from east to west. These 10 aircraft were armed with long-delay-fused 250 and 450 kilogram bombs. At 1100 hours 07, the Buccaneers attacked the Flatface and Spoonrest radar sites at Chibemba from the southwest, firing their second AS-30 missiles. A SA-7 missile was fired back at them, but it missed and detonated at over 18,000 feet. Things were literally hit and miss though for the South Africans. At 1100.08, three waves of Canberra and Mirage aircraft hit Chibemba from the west, dropping 12 450kg and 72 250kg bombs. But all of these missed their targets by a whopping 2 kilometres, causing clouds of dust and sand to blow up in virgin bush. This was a complete failure, not to mention a very expensive failure. This would not do. So the Air Force returned at 1600 hours 45 for a re-strike. Tactical manuals warn against this sort of thing because the defenders are ready, but the second strike was more successful. This time Mirage F-1s were deployed and the profile of the attack was changed. They would approach at low level in four formations. Just before the target, they'll pull up into your right-hand high dive, dropping into the visible radar sights. Another SA-7 was launched by the Angolans but missed again this one self-destructed at 20,000 feet. Reconnaissance units on the ground reported that 70% of the bombs hit the target and the radar signals went off air. It took more than eight days for the flat-face radar to become operational once more, but the Air Force hit it again, this time completely destroying the facility. There was quite a bit going on at D-1. Just before sundown, a formation of five Canberras carried out a medium-level attack on the Kahama installations again, dropping ten four 450-kilograms and 45 250 kg bombs, but most missed the target once more. Pilots were hampered by cloud cover over the target, they said later. Meanwhile, there was a whole lot of ground fighting going on. Later, on the night of the 23rd, 31 Battalion, of what was called the Bushman Battalion, had been ambushed by a large force of Swapo and Fapla inside Angola. Two Impalas flown by Major Dick Lever and Captain Galik were diverted from an art reconnaissance mission to lend assistance. 3-1 Battalion had taken casualties, three were seriously wounded, and they were pinned down in the bush at grid reference Victor Mike 950320, The aircraft launched two successful rocket attacks on the enemy position flying from north to south, which caused Swapo to break off from the contact and thus allowed 3-1's men to withdraw. This incident was the first time in the history of the border war that Impala jets had successfully delivered a combat airstrike supporting ground troops at night. There was also a bit more history here. Major Leva was a Citizen Force pilot attached to 8 Squadron and had flown Mustangs in the Korean War where he had been awarded the American Distinguished Flying Cross. For his night assault in Anampala, he was to be awarded the Honoris Crux Silver. While this was going on, the ground assault was in its final prep phase. In a few hours, they'd begin moving through the bush. As you heard last podcast, there were four battle groups as well as a Pathfinder company. Waiting for the SADF and deployed around Zangongo was Poplar's 19th Brigade. The Brigade headquarters and two infantry companies were actually along with an anti-aircraft battalion at Pupu, with the infantry basically protection companies as well as a mobile reserve for the Brigade. The major strategic objective was the bridge over the Kuneni River, the Zangongo Bridge and there were two infantry battalions and a company of military police guarding that structure. Close by was a company of militia or ODP as they were called who lived inside the local population. This was going to cause some challenges as the SADF sought to sweep Sangongo during the upcoming street battles. A tank company of 10 T-34 and 85 tanks were also available to serve as a mobile reserve along with an armoured car company of 10 more BTR troop carriers. There were two anti-tank battalions and an artillery company waiting for the SADF. About six kilometres south of the town between the Kuneni River and the road to Kuomato was a strong force of FAPLA units. An infantry battalion of three companies were supported by a medium artillery battery as well as a battery of anti-aircraft guns and anti-tank elements and these stretched for more than 15 kilometers southwest of Zangongo. They were deployed on both banks of the river east and west but centered around a second road leading to Nolila. There was another Fapla infantry battalion of three more companies southeast near the road leading to Kuomatu from Damakwera. Fapla's 2-1 Brigade was based at Kahama north of Zangongo, while 11 Brigade was further south at Onjiva. This was going to be a rather tricky operation, to say the least. The SAF's build-up had also been significant, as you heard in episode 49. They, along with 3-2 Battalion and the Rekis, were going to lead off in this massive invasion of Angola. Zangongo was not going to be an easy nut to crack. Military intelligence had identified eight complex targets, each defended by between 50 and 150 soldiers. What intelligence didn't know and would find out that there was also an elaborate and detailed series of hedgehog-type strongpoints developed by the Soviets in their tactical playbook to fight against NATO in Europe. In fact, the Russians are using the same tactic now in their invasion of the Ukraine, particularly around Kiev, from all accounts. All the Russians did in 1981, however, was transplant their Warsaw Pact concept from a European war into an African war. When it came to Zangongo, the air attack was planned to take place minutes before the ground forces launched their assault, so that there wouldn't be that lull we heard about during Operation Skeptic, Smokeshell. There was one really odd aspect, as Leopold Scholz points out, and something which 61 mech battalion members have spoken about since. If that was the mechanized assault unit with the most experience and teeth, why was it part of Battle Group 10? operating as a flanking protection organization. one Zero was supposed to do guard duty to the west of the main assault, which was going to be carried out by Battle Group 2 Zero. It was also stripped of its mechanized infantry companies and its anti-tank platoon. These would be turned into Task Force Alpha's mobile reserve and called Combat Team Mamba. Commandant Johnny Kutzer was in charge of that reserve. Furthermore, one Zero didn't have two troops of artillery, it had one. Roland de mentioned this to me as something of a surprise and, I suppose, a disappointment. As a member of Battle Group 2-0, or what we on the ground called Echelon 2-0, I had no idea about all of these orders of battle going on. I also did not fully realize that Battle Group 2-0 was only recently called into being. We had been moved into position early and had conducted weeks of training, something that I think those writing about this operation didn't fully grasp. The Fris is right to ask why sixty one Mech was not the main assault force to hammer into Fapla. They had had the longest experience in mechanized warfare. Looking at this plan now, I realize that the SATF were actually hedging their bets quite a bit. Should two zero have been held up, or worse, defeated, then one zero would have been an excellent battering ram to use as a follow up. I met Dippy Stippenau a few times in the bush during this operation, as we were tasked with setting up and stripping down his HQ, for most of Ops Protea until we rebelled after a hard day's fight later in the up. More about that in a future podcast. He was one of the best officers in the SADF and had to pull five different units together as Battle Group Two Zero Commander. Most, though, arrived only nine days before D-Day, between the 7th and 15th August. But as Ops medics, our training had started during our officers course in April of that year, but we were not aware of why the training was so tough. The officers course that year was particularly brutal and it was only later that we all realized why. We had been earmarked to become part of this historic invasion. They wanted the shirkers out of the way long before we faced the combat music so to speak. Last episode I explained how the South African order of battle had drawn up. Now we'll focus on the first day of the grand invasion and the battle for Zangongo. The battle groups had provisions for 10 days because we were all motorized there were no troops marching into war, so to speak, so they could carry their food and water with them. On 23rd, the battle groups had left their bases in southwest Africa and driven to the various points from where they had crossed the border. Battle group one was at Rio in western Novemberland, 2-3 and Four Zero at Ombaluntu to the east. Remember, One Zero was going to hold the ground to the west of the Kineni River and cross the cut line first, as you've heard. It was extremely dark, there was no moon. Virtually at the same time, Plan's propaganda arm began to broadcast the invasion had begun to the world. Their intelligence was excellent, but the SADF planners had believed the surprise would come in the direction of attack, along with other tactical manoeuvres over the next few days that would catch the Angolans flat footed. One zero crossed the Kaneni River at Rokana and drove rapidly towards the town of Humbe, which was on the main road between Zangongo and Kahama to the northwest. The columns stormed the town from the northwest. Of course, the defenders had arraigned themselves facing south, so this was one of the tactical surprises that would be repeated in the next few days. They'd softened up the target using artillery, and Fappler began to flee the town almost immediately. The priest was radioed and told about the groups of retreating soldiers. Should they be killed? asked his men. He said no, and fortunately, because there was a group of half a dozen Roman Catholic nuns amongst the soldiers. They were looking after six civilians and troops and De Fries would have faced significant criticism had he bombed these people. Umbe was deserted when the South Africans entered the town. Swapo was also based there and they had left in such a hurry that their laundry was still flapping on washing lines. De Fries's orders then were to deploy further west up route 10 to stop other Fapla forces which may try to attack from Kahama. Meanwhile, Battle Group Two Zero was tracking behind Four Zero, and in turn they were followed by Three Zero. Everyone was in radio silence, but during the points we halted, it was clear that the officers were growing more impatient as the convoy of forty kilometres long was being held up. Four Zero was moving more slowly than the other two, owing to its composition. The buffaloes, in particular, found the going rough. I was driving a Salml Twenty soft body vehicle, with medical supplies and other material inside and was not feeling very comfortable. Around me were armoured vehicles with mine protection, and mine was a simple 20-ton truck, one AK round or tank mine, and the co-driver and I would have been toast. So we stuck to the tire tracks in front of us like glue, obsessively ensuring not an inch over one side or the other, as we stared at the small red light at the back of the flatbed ammunition truck in front of us. When dawn broke on the 24th of August, we were in at China, an open salt flat, and were called to a meeting. Congratulations, the officer commanding said, you're in Angola. Up until then, we hadn't been sure where we were going. Apparently, I was not one of those who cracked the need-to-know Nod. The officers had also discovered at around this point that we were too far east of Zangongo, and the entire convoy had to be rerouted. More time was lost. Overhead, you could hear aircraft at times and we were not sure if they were friendly. Of course, the Air Force had to delay its bombing of Zangongo until the assault force was ready on the ground. The day's air activity began at 1100.05 when four Impalas attacked anti-aircraft sites at Piu, Piu with rockets. Then ten minutes later, the same formation flew over Humbe from the northeast, attacking the anti-aircraft formations there. Forty minutes later, at 1145, four Buccaneers launched AS-30 missiles at what they thought was the Brigade HQ in Piu, Piu. The building was destroyed, but it was later found to be a barracks and not the HQ itself. Five minutes later, the same buccaneers struck military and AAA sites around Zangongo itself. As I said, these air attacks were hit and miss, and this time it was mostly miss. with only the leading buccaneers scoring a direct hit on the main barracks building with an AS-30. The other three missiles all missed their targets. Watching all of this were the SADF ground forces waiting at the jump off points just east of Zangongo. A few minutes later, five Canberras dropped bombs from medium level, followed by eight Mirage F1AZs, then six F1CZs and a formation of four Mirage IIs, all dive-bombed various targets in and around town. In a final flourish, eight Impalas fired their rockets into Zangongo at ten minutes past midday. We could see this assault and the defenders firing a huge amount of anti-aircraft tracer rounds back at the dive-bombing jets. These guns would turn to face our vehicles soon enough unless the Air Force would finish them off. The Impalas had barely fired their last rocket when the ground assault began and the anti-aircraft guns had not all been destroyed. This was going to have an implication for the SADF forces shortly. Vapla and Swapo troops were still shell-shocked by the airstrike when in the north, Dion Ferreira's 3-2 battalion soldiers stormed the bunkers and trench defensive positions on foot. This was a dangerous mission. It's fire and movement based, but the defenders have the advantage. There was also close shelling by 120mm mortars, which supported the South African attack. One infantry group provided covering fire, while the second jumped into the trenches, throwing grenades as they approached. The fighting was hand to hand, sometimes clubbing was used. After a few minutes, the defenders broke and FAPLA and PLAN soldiers withdrew. Battle Group 4 was now in possession of all northern positions. In the South, things were going to be held up somewhat by one of those high-powered and extremely effective Russian 23mm anti-aircraft guns, which was going to stop the assault in its tracks for more than 40 minutes. But that's for next episode. It's time now to halt and secure the perimeter. Please head over to my website abwarpodcast.com. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat. Or you can direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, and for my Ukrainian friends defending themselves against the Russian attackers, forgive my pronunciation, but and Zabarnik and